0: in the It has changed dramatically.
1: The feel the biophotonics was just getting started. The first instrument that I bought was a microwave
2: spectral analyzer. It's time to shed light on our universe. This is All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light. Join us as we explore the latest in lasers, optics, spectroscopy, and microscopy. Each episode, you'll hear from leading voices from across the photonics landscape. We're brought to you by Photonics Media.
3: This is Associate Editor Joel Williams. Here are this week's top stories physicists at the National Institute of Standards and Technology measured and controlled a superconducting qubit using optical fiber rather than metal electrical wires. The work moves toward a universal quantum computer capable of solving the most difficult equations, which is estimated to require about one million qubits. City University of Hong Kong researchers developed a multi-wavelength optical resolution photoacoustic microscopy system based on a single laser source. The system enables simultaneous multi-contrast imaging of hemoglobin concentration, blood flow speed, blood oxygen saturation, and lymphatic concentration. Information at the level the new system is able to deliver provides subcellular insights useful for the study of disease models, such as in cancer research. A Stanford University research team developed a self-cooling laser based on a silica fiber architecture. By overcoming the need for external cooling, such as with a water-based cooling system, the design charts a course for future laser-based devices capable of delivering exceptional purity and frequency stability. Ludwig Maximilian University researchers developed an electrochromic thin-film material that, by changing colors rapidly, is poised to feature in the design of smart windows, solar energy production and acquisition, and automotive applications. The material, which relies on electricity to change colors, is part of a generation of highly ordered lattice structures known as covalent organic frameworks. These are made up of synthetically conceived organic building blocks that under the right conditions form crystalline and nanoporous networks. And finally, researchers led by Stefan Hell at the Max Planck Institute have developed a light microscopy method called Minstead that is able to resolve fluorescently labeled details with molecular sharpness. The technique is derived from Stead Microscopy, also developed by Hell, for which he received the 2014 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. That method was able to achieve a resolution of 20 to 30 nanometers, approximately 10 times sharper than the light microscopes available at the time. The new method provides sharper images and with less noise. Up next, news editor Jake Saltzman is joined by Greg Quarles, former OSA Chief Scientific Officer and CEO of Applied Energetics, for a conversation about directed energy. I'm Joel Williams, and you're listening to All Things Photonics. Today's episode is sponsored by Perkin Elmer. Perkin Elmer is an industry leader in applied markets, providing laboratories across the world with analytical instruments, accessories, services, and solutions that they need to succeed. We strategically partner with customers to enable earlier and more accurate insights supported by deep market knowledge and technical expertise for more information visit www.perkinelmer.com
2: yesterday served for 6 years as the optical society of americas chief scientific officer and is a globally recognized leader for his work with the department of defense and in the progression of global materials research including new laser devices for military medical and industrial applications he is founder of optoelectronic management network and he serves today as ceo of applied energenics based in tucson arizona he is a leading voice both domestically and internationally on the subject of directed energy which will guide our conversation today. Hello, Greg Quarles.
0: Good morning, how are you today?
2: I'm doing well, thank you for being on with us. So we'll jump right into a uh, question about the field of directed energy. You know, this is a field that incorporates so many distinct core photonic technologies that we cover here, uh, as well as applications. You know, you've got sensors and detectors, certainly optics, uh, within optics, fibers, coatings, freeform optics, and certainly lasers and displays. In its most basic definition, what is meant by directed energy?
0: I think from the from the optics and photonics perspective, it's, it's how do you put energy on a target or on a threat, such as anything across the electromagnetic spectrum. It could be X rays, could be particle beams, it could be millimeter waves. But in most cases, for our community, it's really about microwaves, radio frequency, and then primarily putting photons on that target. And it's it's to do anything from interrogating the target using photons, that is, shine light on it, use a sensor and detect what that target is, identify the target, to something called jamming, which is to put so much light onto a sensor that you saturate the sensor, to Detection of, of targets to damage of the targets to destruction of the targets. So it's various levels of power and/or energy, and it's uh, various effects on the uh, on the other end.
2: So with directed energy, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot, or, or that we hear a lot about, is the transfer um, of technology, the technology transfer. And when we talk about that through a directed energy lens, we don't really have to go very far to to hit on the fact that this field draws um, extensively on industry and from industry and components manufacturing. And I do want to ask you about um, some of the seminal contributions from industry uh, in the last 60 years or so corresponding to the advent of the laser. But from a defense side, I want to go there first. How are we seeing the application of technology, um, of directed energy technology in the defense sector? circling back to the influence commercial applications uh, and the supply chain are having as a result?
0: Well, I think if you look at companies like, like ours, you know, and Applied Energetics and other companies, a lot of the research and the product development that takes place is really viewed through a dual-use lens. So you may be funding with internal research and development. You may be funding with contracts and grants from the federal government. But what you're trying to do is develop technology that takes the current technology a step forward in innovation. And so I think a lot of what's done is looked at how how do we generate a technology that can be used both on the scientific side as well as on the defense side. And so, as you said, from the advent of the laser 60 years ago to today, I think a lot of the, the research and the fundamental transition of technology has come in the in the form of the components as one separate area and in the form of the laser gain media. And from the components, I mean, you mentioned some of them. I think, you know, wavefront sensors are are, are a really good example. And one of the things that you want to do is look at how do you put the, the photons on the target in a way that you can get the desired effect. And typically that means putting as much energy or as much peak power on that target in as small of a spot as possible. So you need to be able to detect how the light goes through the atmosphere, what the perturbations are, and how you're gonna correct for them at the laser end. That's done every day uh, with telescopes and trying to look at atmospheric propagation of light as they do their detection. It's also being used in the Department of Defense on the lasers that are being generated. You have to worry about you know, standard and fundamental optics such as windows, mirrors, and lenses. As you try to intersect and uh, interrogate various targets, you sometimes have to go to higher and higher powers, uh, higher and higher energies, and that means that you really have to worry about how well do the photons propagate through this lens? How do they reflect off of the mirror? What is the damage threshold? How do we continue to increase the manufacturing at the polishing side to get better surfaces? to How do we get better coatings on these optics so that the, the damage is reduced? Then it goes to... Fundamental technology such as power conditioning is used in the computer industry all the time. Uh, how, how do you clean up the power so that it keeps your laser running stable? How do you get rid of the waste heat? Thermal management is a really key issue that's driven a lot of the evolution of the technology over the last 60 years. And then finally, it's the game media. How are you going to generate the photons? So it starts from everything from the evolution of diodes Uh, back in the, in the 80s, the the increase in the power of the diodes where you could actually pump the laser gain media to coupling those light, the diode light into the gain media, if that was a fiber or a a crystalline solid, uh, or in some of the new cases today, coupling the light into the alkali lasers such as the D-Pals laser. Uh, all of those really play a key role in what we've seen in the evolution of the technology over the last 60 years. And, and now it's getting to distributed gain. How do you pump multiple fibers? How do you couple those fibers? How do you continue to generate more power with these fiber bundles that you have instead of having 5 or 10 kilowatts? 10, 15 years ago, there was a 100 kilowatt demonstration. Now there's a goal of 300 kilowatts. How do you continue to increase that power as time goes on while continuing to worry about the size, weight, and power reductions on the overall system so that you don't just have this behemoth of a platform out there. It still has to be manageable in the field.
2: Greg Quarles, our guest on All Things Photonics, he is CEO of Applied Energetics. Uh, And one of the things about Applied Energetics that you mentioned just a moment ago is that it's a dual-use technology company. So we're we're talking about supporting the needs uh, both of industry and defense, but it's very much a business. Can you talk a little bit about the balance that Applied Energetics... Uh, strikes between weighing you know, on the one hand um, the supply chain and, and the things that uh, you would consider with industry, but at the same time also the needs and interests of something so monumental as the defense sector.
0: Well, the, you know what we're we're consistently looking for is innovation within applied energetics. How do we generate the intellectual property? How do we how do we come up with new ideas that can impact not only the defense sector but the society as a whole? And, and just to give you an example, our one of our primary f- focuses at Applied Energetics is looking at the generation of ultra short pulse photons coming out of our laser systems. And when I say ultra short pulse, I mean, you know, something in the hundreds of femtoseconds region, less than a picosecond for sure. And what we're seeing is that yes, there are applications and growing applications for this technology in the defense sector, but there are applications for it in the energy sector to try to get more compact tabletop uh, linear accelerators, there are applications for it in the medical and biomedical sector in terms of trying to get a tunable set of wavelengths coming out of a laser where you can penetrate tissue and go in and look for abnormalities, tumors, uh, things along those lines uh, without damaging tissue because you've got the pulse width so short. And then finally, The growth of 3D printing, the additive and subtractive manufacturing sectors are all really looking at how do I put more photons on this piece of material to either take material off or to add material to that. So, you know, we look at each of the technologies that we're innovating and and how can we apply it to the non-defense sector as well as to the defense sector because we know we have to have a commercial market in order to sustain growth for the corporation.
2: You know, as you're outlining some of all of this here for our listeners at all things photonics, you know, it strikes me that this audience is not the only audience that you are articulating this to. Certainly in your time as um, the Optical Society's chief scientific officer and also today, you're doing a great amount of explaining this and talking about the potential of this technology to those in government uh, as well as those in industry. What are some of the core messages that you find yourself conveying about the potential of some of these technologies?
0: I think the, you know, the core message has really resonated, uh, when I was at the Optical Society and, and they continue today and that is, you know, number one, we need to have a pipeline of students. We need to have the educational system that is encouraging diversity, that's encouraging, you know, freedom of thought, the ability to bring students to, uh, the area of optics and photonics. It, it's such a growing field from everything from telecom, to gravitational wave discoveries, to everything in between, and you know, we, we need to bring really bright minds to this area, it needs to be a diverse pool of minds. Secondarily, we need to encourage our governments to be able to put more money in worldwide, to be able to establish research labs, to be able to establish a place for students to come in and become energized about making this a career path for themselves. And then demonstrate across that path that there's there's academia, which is which is important for the educational process. but there's also industrial research that takes place all across the globe. There is research within federal labs. You know there's research in various different areas and including at the at the not-for-profit level. We need, uh, individuals in there to be able to explain science at a fundamental level, to be able to go into, you know, the halls of government across the world and, and bring to them in a very easily understandable form. What is this that you're talking about and why does it impact me? Why does it impact my constituents? Why does it impact our area and our, and our country? So we need people from science comm all the way to, you know, the, the, the fundamental researchers and that, that takes time, that takes money, that takes excitement level at, at the STEM, at the, at the grassroots from K through 12, uh, to, to get these students energized. And then for what we're talking about here, especially within the United States, for Department of Defense work, we need students that are eligible to get security clearances. So We need them to understand what it takes to do that so that potentially they could work on programs that may be classified.
2: Has this message evolved uh, o- over time? As you've you've spent years in the industry, spreading it to to different populations, and tell me a little bit about how the um, how this th- this notion has grown, and how the message has has grown with it.
0: Well, I, I think what you see today is that advocacy and public policy are are not taboo terms. You know, uh, some thirty years ago, when, when I first started working in the advocacy side. Um, you know, it, it wasn't really looked upon as something that a scientist should be doing. You shouldn't be out there promoting the need for more funding, the, the need for better education at the government level, things along those lines. Um, it was something that you had uh, a public relations person do, and not your scientific community do. And, and I think you'll see that many of the professional societies, whether it's in the optics and photonics field or in other fields. Has started to see the necessity and, and the benefit of, of doing this uh, public policy and outreach. It helps to be able to go in and talk to uh, one of your government leaders and be able to describe, you know, why is laser research important? Why has it taken us 60 years to get to where we're at today? Where would we be without it? And, and really look at you know, what are the, you know, what has come out of funding the government in the scientific area. And one example that I've been using a lot lately is these uh, infrared thermometers that you're holding up to your forehead as we look at uh, measuring temperatures during this pandemic. This came out of a NASA funded program to figure out how to take temperatures of astronauts in outer space in a confined area and be able to do it in a repeatable manner. This was a NASA funded program that is now you know, in the hands of, of, of every single household uh, around this world, you know, and and another one that I talk about is uh, a a lot of the work that has taken place with our cell phones. I mean, the semiconductors that we have and we utilize in our cell phones and computers and everything every day came out of a DARPA-funded program some 30 years ago. It was DARPA that had this vision for this really hard problem to solve for semiconductor growth. So these are the kind of things I try to express to the government leaders is this is a long-term commitment to funding fundamental science that has payoff in the end. It isn't a short-sighted game. It really has a return on investment, but it takes time, it takes bright minds, and it takes a global community working on this together in order to solve these problems.
2: Today, um, in the directed energy space, where are we seeing the majority of funding directed? And how has that shifted in the last 15, 20, 25 years?
0: You know, I think um, you know if, if we go back and look at the, the, kind of the directed energy roadmap you know I think back in the in the 70s and, and 80s the most powerful lasers that were in existence at that time were, were were co2 lasers and they were being developed for the industrial market space cutting welding things along those lines and those powers they were able to scale up into the you know hundreds to thousand kilowatts but there really was no way to keep the beam Shape controlled so I think lasers have shifted from this uh, gas laser to the other types of oxygen iodine, hydrogen fluoride, deuterium fluoride types of lasers, uh, and then I think you know, back in the late 1980s and early 1990s, you started to see a shift towards solid-state lasers. At the time, you, you know, had the Ruby laser, which was the first laser uh, that was demonstrated 60 years ago, and then neodymium YAG became a predominant Laser, laser glass was being used at places like Lawrence Livermore uh, for inertial confinement fusion, and you saw a real focus on how do we use gain material that can generate these powers but have it continue to scale up into the megawatt area and be able to do it at a repetition rate that was high enough that you could put that light on a target downrange. So I think the biggest transition I think that we've seen, let's say, in the last 20 years has really been because of the funding coming out of the directed energy joint technology office, trying to get laser solid state laser gain to see if it could be efficiently used in that hundreds of kilowatts to the megawatt region. So it's gone from yttrium aluminum garnet YAG type of slabs and amplifiers to distributed gain material made out of crystalline plates. And, and now is really transition to fibers and we we use fibers every day in, in the telecom area and getting fiber optics to the home you know with the work that was done you know coming out of Bell Labs and, and other places in, in developing very low impurity fiber they were able to demonstrate that you could start putting higher and higher powers through this fiber and generate laser light from it and now what you have is something that is uh, reducing in size because you're using these fibers that are, Somewhat larger than a hair on your head to propagate light through and generate tens to hundreds to thousands of watts coming out of them, and and the the real focus I think over the last let's say decade has been you know how do we take these distributed gain materials whether they're fiber you know coherently combined fiber spectrally combined fiber uh, how do we take this this set of a hundred fibers and generate three hundred kilowatts from it. How do we how do we take that and, and have it have a very clean beam that you can control out kilometers away from the laser and put that light onto a target uh with precise targeting and, and rapid engagement of the target. So I really think that the the biggest gains have been made from diode pumping to diode pump fibers to coherently combined fibers to this whole distributed gain where you're you're generating light all around your platform and then bringing it together at the output piece.
2: I'm really pleased that you sort of put some marks on the timeline here as we, we talk about this shift from CO2 to solid-state lasing that has impacted really the whole of photonics, but maybe nowhere more than, than directed energy. On directed energy, in terms of its weapons applications, directed energy encompasses multiple um, distinct types of, of weapons or threats, and they really span the full width uh, of the spectrum. Can you now take us across the spectrum uh, and identify, hit on some of those individual threats?
0: If you think back to the 70s when directed energy was, was just like, uh, this twinkle in in somebody's eye and um, the whole Star Wars concept was being evolved. It was really to try to negate the Cold War and the worry about somebody using a nuclear weapon on somebody else and launching it as an intercontinental ballistic missile. And there were thoughts about how do we or how does any other country use light or use this you know laser operating at the speed of light to put the, that light on... A flying missile and shoot it down before it has a chance to do any destruction. And I think you know during that time frame, the CO2 lasers and the chemical lasers were really being explored to see if it was possible to do that and to propagate the light through the atmosphere and and get it onto the target. So I think I think the ICBMs were really kind of that first threat, and then after that came other types of threats that, that people had to worry about you know more readily on on a day-to-day basis whether it be a mortar being fired or munitions or now when you when you look at the threats that we have today it, it's things like UAVs drones if you will uh flying unmanned uh that have cameras on them that can be weaponized that can have explosives on them you know so you, you've got this whole gamut of current threats uh, and then you've got other threats that are out there. I mean, you have threats that were just really high flying aircraft that had uh, sensors on them, you know, whether that be cameras or imaging platforms that you wanted to, to destroy the focal plane array or the, the CMOS array and you wanted to take out their ability to watch what you were doing. Uh, so it was how do you propagate light up into the atmosphere to an airplane or you know, maybe even potentially to a satellite. Those are really tricky things to do because they're moving fast. And then if we look at you know what? What are we what are we facing today as global threats? I think the UAVs are, are quite a large threat. I think that things like cruise missiles, things that fly very fast, that could hit you know the side of a an aircraft carrier and, and damage the ship. How do you how do you destroy that, defeat it, or at, at least take out its ability to, to intercept the target by blinding it and taking out the cameras and on there and then. You know, I think upcoming, we hear a lot in the in the press about multiple countries working on hypersonic missiles, and these are missiles that are flying between Mach 5 and, and Mach 20. How, how do you shoot something at that? You know, if you were to shoot a, a munition at that, how do you shoot something up in the atmosphere to hit something flying Mach 20 and then try to destroy it? It's really hard. You've got to be able to track it, and, and these things are programmed to be able to move, so you know, your, your best solution may be the use of photons going at the speed of light and intercepting that target, tracking the target and trying to intercept it and, and damage it before it reaches wherever it's intended to go. So I think you know, what, what you're looking at is what is this threat? How quickly does it move and, and how do you engage that as it moves quickly? And you know, what we, what we see is that, you know, engaging anything at the, at the speed of light gives you a better opportunity to To destroy that and so now you need everything that's wrapped around it to give you a relatively low operational cost and and logistic support and the ability to have a wide area of coverage to to, to look over the horizon, to look in the sky, to look underwater and then be able to, to take care of that threat.
2: So these increasingly high-power systems, uh, and specifically laser systems, are, are certainly under development for a reason. And I know you touched on this just now in that, la- that last answer, but what are some of the other types of threats that, that engineers today uh, and systems developers are, are working to address, be they um, in application now or, or perhaps horizontal?
0: You know, I, I think some of the things that, that people are looking at, you know, how, how, do you, how do you disrupt a platform with the least amount of damage. So, you know, if you if you have something that has made potentially a high value to you, maybe it's got data stored on it or whatever, how, how do you intercept something that has a, a computer or communications or uh, some other to- type of electronics on board without destroying the whole platform or taking human life? How do you make this non-lethal, but you're able to shut it down? So, you know, if, if you think about it, you know, one of the One of the things is you have drones that fly in the air, and a lot of times they have surveillance equipment on there, and you may like to to take a look at what they've been recording to understand what they're watching that you have. So your preferred method would be to be able to to bring the drone down onto the ground and, and look at the equipment that's on board. Now, you could try to shoot it out of the air with a missile. You could try to shoot it out of the air with something else, but... At that point, you've completely destroyed it. You know, the mission's accomplished. You, you've, you've taken it out of commission, but you don't, you don't have the ability to interrogate it. So if you can use radio frequency or microwave, or if you're able to use an ultra short pulse laser where you hit the side of the platform and that optical energy is converted to radio frequency and now you've damaged electronics and it can no longer fly and comes to the ground. I mean, those are the type of things I think that engineers are, are really looking at is instead of just having a, a hard damage to the system, how do, how do you do soft damage to it so that you can uh, be able to look at it in the future?
2: I want to get uh, get, get some insights from you now. Um, I mentioned your, your past as for six years serving as chief scientist the Optical Society of America. Uh, And just to be a fly on the wall for some of those conversations would be absolutely fascinating. Certainly can't do that now, but how do you reflect on the experience um, now five years after your appointment? Was was the tenure what you expected, what you hoped, all that it would be?
0: You know, it it was tremendous. It it gave me the opportunity to work with thousands of scientists around the world that were doing cutting-edge research and technology development in all areas of, of, you know, optics and photonics. You know, my my specialty was in laser materials and, you know, directed energy and, and things along those lines from my my previous work. But you know, like I said, this this gave me the ability to be in D.C. to witness the announcement of the first detection of gravitational waves from the LIGO group. To go out and visit LIGO out in Hanford and, and to go to their their ESA Virgo facility over in Uh, Italy, uh, it gave me the opportunity to meet with scientists that were doing some of the best work in in optical imaging and microscopy in the world. It gave you the the chance to sit down and and ask questions and and hear presentations and help to stimulate the ability to to bring students to this field, uh, that just haven't a a magnificent amount of energy. You know, it, it gave me an opportunity to to take part in, in really an expansion of diversity and, and encouragement and inclusivity in our field to bring it to where we have multiple voices sitting around a table that can express their input from directions that, you know, I may not have had from directed energy or laser materials. So it was really a fantastic opportunity to, to talk to everyone from undergraduate students, to the multiple Nobel Prize winners in optics and photonics and really hear their life story, where they were going, uh, what was taking place and, and to, and to celebrate, to celebrate what's taking place around the world. I mean, just to, to celebrate the, the Nobel Prize that took place with Donna Strickland and Gerard Moreau, ultra short pulse and, uh, high peak power lasers. And those are the kind of things that, you know, are, are type of, you know, once in a lifetime type of opportunities to, to experience and to do it with 26,000 of my, my nearest friends in the optical society was, uh, was, was very uplifting. And, and also, you know, it was an opportunity to, to travel the world to talk to global leaders either at the EU or throughout Asia or South America, other continents to, to understand what their challenges were. I, I have the experience to, to be able to go through and, and visit leaders through multiple countries in Africa that uh, we're really trying to find a path to being able to attract better talent globally and bring them in to, to help their country, their universities, uh, establish optics and photonics centers. So those are the kind of experiences that are, will last a lifetime that made lifetime friends and colleagues, uh, and, and really forced me to, to learn more about what was taking place. And then you see things such as the, The revolution and and the breakout here in the, in the quantum computing area now, Uh, you know, to be able to be a part of that and to sit on the, you know, national tectonics initiative and national quantum initiative panels and, and help to drive that in front of our congressional and, and, and executive branch leaders as well as university and industry leaders and, and really accelerate the funding and the acceptance of that as a technology that needed to be high on the list of breakthrough technologies for our country and and for the global world and, and, and talk about the use of optics and photonics in those areas. Very uplifting, very, very exciting.
2: So no doubt there is a, a, a global optics and photonics community. But I'm curious about potentially a, a global applied or, or directed energy community. No doubt there are constraints um, in the sharing of information. Those things are of natural consideration within uh, this area of photonics. But is there, uh, in your mind, a, a global applied energy community?
0: There is. And, and I mean, you, you look at some of the, some of the global, global leaders in, in, in optics and photonics, Dallas and, and, and BAE are, are, are both European companies. There's there's a tremendous directed energy community in in, in Israel and um, you know I'm, I'm certain that China and Russia have directed energy communities that you know have regular meetings. Again, there are constraints there, but uh, there are some global directed energy meetings. Obviously, the, the ability to attend is is somewhat limited, but you know there are, there's there's a strong UK and and, and EU position in that area. And again, I think it goes back to the, the dual use. If, if you look at the, the expansiveness of the, of the ELI program and the beamlines uh, that have grown in, in Europe to really do high peak power fundamental physics with lasers, and, and you look at the, the work that takes place in Europe in the, the, the high power CW systems from places like Fraunhofer and Desi and places like that, that are going into the industrial sector, into, into cutting and welding and, and via hole drilling. You know, all of those bring light to the application, not only in industry and not only in fundamental science, but also to the directed energy side of the portfolio. So there are researchers that are working in that area all around the world.
2: What are some of the the misconceptions, or or maybe a better way of saying it, misunderstandings that the public has about directed energy beyond just what it means and where it's going? And I suppose the second part of that is: are, are there ways that we uh, or those in the media can better cover it, uh, advances in the field?
0: Um, you know, I, I think the biggest misconception that I've had brought you know questions brought to me with is: are you using this on humans? And you know, I think that's the the, the biggest Erroneous part from, from the, the sci-fi movies of the sixties and seventies. You know, there, there is a, a rule within the Geneva Convention that you are not allowed to, uh, have this be lethal or damage eyesight. And so, you know, you, many of the directed energy researchers in the community worry very much about, is this an eye safe optical source? How do we, you know, maintain eye safety at all times? I mean, the last thing you want to do is blind somebody that's one of your allies. And, and you know, it's illegal to, to blind people in the field. So, you know, that, I think that's the biggest misconception. Is you're, you're not shooting a death ray at somebody and, and killing them with a laser. And you're not blinding people with lasers. Those are completely forbidden. I mean, what, what we're trying to do is to deter technology from being used, Uh, on populated areas, and on civilian population, by intercepting the threat at the speed of light and and damaging it, destroying it. It's it's as simple as that. So those are the types of of breakthroughs that that we're trying to make and and trying to have out in the field so that we save the lives of our uh, men and women in the armed services and we save the lives of civilians.
2: In the last, it looks like, 13 months, if my math is correct, we now have a new branch of the military. Uh, Perhaps the way it was announced was not uh, in in such a way that uh, the focus is on the technology more than anything else. I'm talking about the the Space Force there, but drawing from the insights you've shared with us on the podcast here today, what looms next for for directed energy and maybe within that high-powered laser applications? You
0: know, I I think... The biggest areas right now that are are being funded and are really being looked at are how to defeat swarms of things that are flying fast, whether those are are mortars or missiles or drones, because with the evolution of other areas of technology, such as artificial intelligence and machine learning, if if you look at things like some of the programs, uh, sporting events on TV, and you see these magnificent drone displays with uh, flying LEDs and lights and formations and, and, and movement through the sky, you, you can see how these things can operate remotely and uh, be controlled as one unit. So I think one of the big worries globally is how, how do we defend our airspace and, and how do we defend our commercial airspace? You, you look at uh, the shutdown of Heathrow several years ago and the billions of dollars that were lost because somebody was flying a hobby shop drone around the airport, and they had no way to intercept it or destroy it or take it down, and therefore aircraft had to divert to other airports or be sitting on the ground and not be allowed to take off because this was a threat to, you know, being sucked into an engine and, and damaging or or, or making a, a plane potentially crash. So, you know, I think trying to understand how. How you can use light to solve problems like that impacts both the commercial and the uh, and the military sector. And then, as I said previously, I think former Secretary Esper had said uh, last year. You know, he he foresees one of the, the the biggest threats emerging globally as as the hypersonic race, and and this may be the the next arms race, if you will, because of. Uh, You you could launch a hypersonic missile that's going to go Mach 20 and then go completely across the Pacific Ocean in less than an hour. That's not a lot of time to react to a trajectory of a missile coming at an unknown target. So I think coming up with ways to be able to intercept those types of threats using advanced optics and photonics is is going to be one of the higher funded areas uh, coming up here over the next decade.
2: Greg Quarles is CEO of Applied Energetics. He joins us uh, on all things photonics from Tucson, Arizona. Greg, thank you for being on with us. Uh, Stay safe and all the best to you.
0: Thank you very much. And, And the same way to our community out there. So thank you for the time today. I really appreciate it.
2: For the first time in All Things Photonics, we have the chance now to explore the topic of optical power beaming. You might be familiar with the terms power over fiber or free space power beaming. And in essence, what we are talking about is the transmission of energy via optical fibers in the form of laser light. Applications for the all optical technology span those in telecom, datacom, to monitoring via UAVs and UUVs. A leader in the space is Powerlight Technologies, located outside Seattle. And the company's co founder and CTO, Tom Nugent, joins us now. How are you doing, Tom?
1: I'm doing very well, Jake. Thank you. How are you doing?
2: I'm great, thank you. So, I've described it a little bit. Um, Certainly you're more and better equipped to do it than I am. What is optical power beaming and and why now is the technology advancing?
1: Optical power beaming is a way of taking electrical power from somewhere where it's easy to generate and gather and transmitting it to somewhere else where it's uh, much more difficult to have that energy. And we do this by taking electricity and converting into light with a laser. And then projecting that light either through the air, which we call free space power beaming, or through an optical fiber, this power over fiber you mentioned, where at the other end, specialized solar cells convert that light back into electricity, where it can then be used to charge batteries, power devices, and do whatever else you need an extension cord to do. You've described
2: it as a system of systems, and it really is just that. Uh, And we mentioned telecom and datacom, and when you're a technology company, or any company really, a startup or spin-out or anything, one of the focuses has to be on identifying the optical nearer-term adopters. Who's going to benefit most from the technology and quickly? What industries have you identified as possessing the highest value in, in terms of implementing this technology?
1: You're right, and it's been a number of years talking to a lot of different potential customers to narrow down to the ones that are make sense for the first products. And the telecom industry and the military are the ones that are the ones we're pursuing right now. Telecom has a lot of need with the deployment of 5G to be able to put up a lot more telecommunication nodes rapidly and the permitting process or the process with getting new power lines run can slow that down a lot, so a lot of interest uh, for them. And on the military side, of course, there's always a need to move fast or put power into places such as unmanned aerial vehicles, where it's really hard to run a, a power line in a, any other way.
2: Take us through the, the journey, the advance of the company, uh, it, its origins, and how it's arrived to its current point in, in these conversations with Telecom, Datacom, and, and these military uh, firms.
1: Yeah, we got our start, uh, gosh, 14 years ago uh, my co-founder, the late uh, Dr. Jordan Kerr, had been working with lasers since he was in high school in the 70s, and had in the uh, 90s looked at different ways of using uh, lasers for power beaming and even for for launching rockets. I met him in the mid 2000s, and we wanted to make a commercial go of using power beaming for initially niche applications, and we got our start in coincidentally when NASA was offering prize money in their Centennial Challenges program for power beaming. And that was a competition where, in the context of the competition, you had to have a robot climb a cable to one kilometer in the sky powered by nothing but uh, power from the ground. And we won that in 2009. And then uh, a few of us on the team quit our day jobs and uh, started from there and have been working on improving the technology and a lot of the different subsystems and understanding these market needs uh, ever since.
2: Tom Nugent from PowerLight is our guest. Uh, Safety and utility, they're always going to be among the areas of concern, or at least thematic to a conversation when you're talking about the generation of power. How's optical power beaming and within that PowerLight addressing those challenges?
1: Yeah, and one thing to say about all of this that I think a lot of people listening may not realize is just how close this technology is to reality. And one part of making it real is to make it safe. You can't really offer a product that's not gonna be safe. And when people think about lasers, they think of of death rays and pencil beams. And what we have been doing is making active sensing as well as passive design features that make it so that no one can be exposed to the hazardous levels of light. And it's uh, analogous to the insulation on electrical uh, wires that are in your house. You know, you could uh, hurt yourself with those electrical wires, but insulation and GFI circuits make it so that it's safe. And we're doing the same thing with these different active sensing technologies to be able to shut the laser off temporarily before anything can get into the beam. And then it comes right back on after the beam path is clear. And since there's usually a battery or some energy storage at the other end, it allows the device that's being powered to have uninterrupted power, even if the power beam has to shut off occasionally for these safety concerns.
2: And one of the interesting angles, I suppose, uh, that, that you and your your company here are are working throughout, are, are navigating, is the fact that you have the technology, but in many ways, it's not so much the application that you're concerned with. It's an interesting dynamic. Uh, I'm just curious. Tell me a little bit about that dynamic and the ability to work throughout different applications and, and how the process of identifying the right ones goes.
1: Yeah, no, it's a good question. And what we are effectively offering is a wireless extension cord. So, as you can imagine. Anyone who needs power has, has come to us over the years and said, asked, can you power my device? And the answer is generally yes, because we're, we're just delivering electricity. It, it is in many ways like a, a, an extension cord or a USB cable. And so the challenge is, given that this is a new technology and has some components whose prices have been falling, but which are still high, trying to, to identify which of those use cases can uh, accept the initially high price before the quantity scales up and further drives the price down. Um, and who understand that as a new technology, there will be kinks to work out. And so it's been really great talking with people in the telecom industry uh, and in the military as we do demonstrations of systems with those customers, getting their feedback on the facets that are useful to them. Uh, we We don't want to take this analogy too far, but it's sort of like, you know, iPhones or cars or whatever, before people actually have it, they don't really know what they want. And so it's important to get these systems to them to use for them to then explore and understand really what are the important factors beyond, of course, the basic, we need X amount of power over Y amount of distance.
2: It's really a fascinating dynamic uh, and it raises uh, an obvious two-part question and I hope we can end with it. Uh, Number one, how close is PowerLight to a product rollout and what is that product?
1: So we are targeting having a product in customers' hands for early deployment in approximately two years. And that depends on a lot of factors, but we are working through all of the uh, different aspects necessary to get there. And that first product will be this free space wireless power system that will deliver somewhere in the order of half to one kilowatt of power over a distance from probably half to one kilometer. And that's one of the things that I think sets us apart from other people working in the general wireless power space is that we're focusing on much longer distances and higher power levels than just about anyone else. We have demonstrated all the necessary uh, subsystems and capabilities and are now iterating it through, um, as Elon Musk has called it, the production hell. We're, we're, We're getting closer to that of taking what has been demonstrated and making it robust and reliable and easy enough to have anyone be able to use it.
2: And one of the things about this technology is that it's really close. Can you tell us about some of the progress that um, has happened and continues to happen as this moves towards a launch and and a realization on the market?
1: Yeah, and it's still surprising to us after a number of years when we talk with potential customers or people who come out to see demonstrations that people who are involved in high technology and finding out new uh, components and, and technologies for these customers still don't know about this technology or realize how close it is. And so, as I mentioned, we've been developing all of the different subsystems to make it be able to deliver the power that's needed at a reasonable efficiency and being able to make the safety reliable um, and reliable enough to be certified by third parties to be safe. And all of that has been coming together and now integrating and, excuse me, uh, uh, making the transmitter and receiver ends uh, smaller and easier to manufacture and all of that has been coming together over the last few years such that we expect that uh, this closer than you think uh, fact is really going to hit people home over the next couple of years as we get this out to uh, field deployment.
2: That's Tom Nugent. He is co-founder and CTO of PowerLight Technologies. He joins us today and all things Photonics from just outside Seattle. Tom, thank you for being here.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
2: That does it for this episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our engineer, Alan Shepard, and to Joel Williams with the news. Our featured music is courtesy of betterwithmusic.com. Most of all, thank you, our listeners. As always, you can share your thoughts, pick us ideas, let us know how we're doing. You can reach us at allthingsatphotonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as on our website. Subscribe. Never miss an episode. I'm Jake Saltzman. This has been a Photonics Media Production.